today, or our passage that we're going to be looking at is in the 30th chapter of Genesis. So if you would turn, I would really like to read some of this. It's, it's a longer chapter. You might notice 43 verses, so I'm going to try to remember this time to read the second part when we get to the second part. But I think it maybe is better for our grasp of what's going on not to read the whole thing right now. I'm going to read the first 24 verses. So in Genesis chapter 30, let's begin reading in verse number 1. When Rachel saw, let me back up, sorry about that, I meant to do this, and anyway, little, little interesting note of um, continuity, let's call it continuity, or we could call it parallelism. Back up to chapter 29, verse 31, I want to show you something. All right, so that verse, look at how it starts. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Look at verse 1 of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children. Now look over in verse 8. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children. So do you kind of see how all of this really hangs together with the writer kind of bringing these threads of the story together? Now let's read from verse 1 of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah, go into her so she, that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me. By the way, I, I think we take this here in the sense of vindicated. Judged in the sense of vindicated. God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan, which is what that means. Judged or vindicated. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali, which means my wrestling. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, or blessed, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher, which means blessed or happy. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found <clears throat> mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But he said to her, she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages. <clears throat> I gave my servant to my husband, so she called his name 
Issachar, which as you guessed has to do with wages. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore Jacob, uh, bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Notice Dinah is related to Dan. Dan meant vindicated. This has to do with that also, that name. Then God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. A bit of faith expressed in this because Joseph doesn't have anything to do with Joseph as much as it has to do with the future. It means adding. And she says, may the Lord add to me another son. So in his name is a prayer expressed. Okay, great. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you today for all of God's people, whether in this class or any of the others or in our graded Sunday school or those who are caring for our, our younger children. Lord, we just look to you. We come to you confessing that we're a needy people. Uh, Lord, uh, even this past week proves to us that we still are sinners. We still have much ground to cover. Thank you that you're still working in our lives, that having begun a good work in us, you promised to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we're not the same as we were five years ago or 10 or 20, but at the same point, we, we acknowledge in your presence that we're sinners and we need to be more like Jesus. And so as we look back into the Old Testament and we see the stories of other players, they've gone before us, but they're still involved in the same types of struggles that we are. Uh, may we not sit in judgment, but may we sit to learn. And would you open our hearts and give us a good time here in this class around your word. Uh, treat us as we know you will as individuals so that the needs of our hearts will be met, sometimes unknown to those around us, but the Spirit of God is not bound, and we pray that you would use the Word of God in our lives. Glorify your Son in our midst, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, this morning, you notice I titled this The Years with Laban, and there's some overlap, but I think by and by, that's a pretty good way to summarize what's going on here, realizing as you think about the writer himself, that you can't tell everything that's in the story. But this does a pretty good job of summarizing at least the parts, uh, this is a point I want to be careful to make, at least the parts that God wants us to know about. Especially when you consider the fact that the territory that we're going to cover here takes us through 14 years and begins to add on to that until we get to the time of 20 years that Jacob spent with Laban, so that's a lot of ground to cover in a chapter or two, isn't it? Can't possibly think that we know everything about this. Can't possibly think that in the space of a chapter and a half or two chapters, there's time to tell us everything. So what we have here is what God wants to tell us. Um, all of Scripture really is that way when you think about it, so nothing special about the comments I'm making here. But it does sort of go to the point that God deems this important. And one of the things that jumps out right away is you've got 12 children born in this chapter. I know what you're thinking. Some of you sharp ones, you're thinking, ah, he's wrong, it's 11 because Benjamin isn't born till later on the way home. Yeah, but don't forget Dinah. So 
you've got basically the record of the tribes of Israel, the house of Israel in this chapter. That's why, as I say in this second point, that we're talking about the family years. Now, I've divided this into two parts because we're going to talk first about Jacob and his wives, and then we're going to talk about Jacob and Laban. And you might remember that I mentioned to you before that uh, one of the previous chapters was a, another chapter of firsts because you have Jacob's first job, if you want to think of it. You know, that's how we would talk today. And you have Jacob's marriage, that's the first, and then you have our marriage is. And then you have his children, so family, that's a new experience for Jacob. And now we're going to get more development of, of both of those latter points. And uh, some insight as well into the marriage, <laughs> because you can't, you can't uh, take the one away from the other. So these are the family years. Now, I have to tell you this at the beginning, I wish I didn't have to. But do you remember I made this comment when we were in chapter 27? That was sort of a chapter that zeroed in on family too, but the earlier generation. It zeroed in on Isaac, Jacob's father, Rebekah, his mother, and then himself, and then Esau. And the comment that I made to you at the time is that it's kind of a dismal chapter. And the reason that I say that is because if you think about this, this is God's star family. <laughs> Try to think of it in a different way, maybe. That's just the way it comes to me. But this is, the, this is the chosen family. This is the family God is going to work through to build the house of Israel and to ultimately further the program of redemption that he has determined is going to come through Abraham and his seed. So you're kind of looking for great things. You're kind of thinking, well, these are people of faith. They aren't like the inhabitants of the land around them. They're supposed to be the pilgrims and the sojourners and the, uh, the people of God. And, and they are. Just be real careful. We need to be real careful. Because the moment you start pointing the fingers at them, as I'm fond of saying, you point one at them, you got three coming back at yourself. And so all of these mistakes are mistakes that we can learn from, but this, is, this chapter is the same way. Why I said that that, that story is kind of dismal is because it's like everybody there does the wrong thing. Everybody there kind of fails, and it's the same way in this chapter. When you look at that, that we don't have really the record. You have a few hints of things that are positive, but the main events, the main events that are narrated here show a, a dismal failure on the part of these people, and it's a failure that I think is often in our lives, so I'm trying to abide by what I've said. You know, it's, 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 I always think, having done this for most of my adult life, I'm going to get to heaven one day and have to see these people. I don't want to have preached a bunch of redneck sermons about them. Now, I know the, the, where, you're, where you're probably going to be exonerated there is that we, we get to heaven, everybody's perfect. So, you know, if you said something uh, a little over the top about Peter, I don't think Peter's going to be looking you up when you get there to say, you preached that sermon. But it's still just kind of an interesting little way to think about it. You know, I want to treat the Word of God honestly, and I want to treat these people fairly. So, but... Part of that is also pointing out the things God intends for us to learn. So here's, here's kind of the way I've drilled down on this, because you know what we're doing is we're talking about the life of Jacob. 
and subtitled it The Struggle for Blessing. And this, this theme of struggle for blessing just weaves itself through the entire story. And that's true in this chapter. I mean, it really comes out. Everybody here, all the players here, whether it's Jacob or his wives or Laban, or even we have one mention of Reuben. Um, the others are mentioned when they're born by name, but we have one actual mention of Reuben doing something. Everybody who's mentioned here is eager for God's blessing, at least what we would call God's blessing. They want good to come to their lives from the hand of God. But nobody seems to be interested in going about that God's way. What is God's way? You know the song, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. Never fear, only, what's the next part say? Trust and obey, and that's usually what we call that song, trust and obey. Hard to get, whoever wrote that song, hard to get a better summary of essentially how it is that we need to walk with God. Trust and obey. And when we do that, it doesn't guarantee that we're trial-free because some of God's blessings come to us in the form of trials to make us better. But if you don't go about living your Christian life that way, that's God's prescribed way, so how is it that we're going to go to God with our hand out and expect him to reward us and bless us if we don't go about it that way? These people don't go about it that way. They go about it depending on their own native gifts, on their own strengths, on their own ingenuity, same exact story that we saw back in chapter 27. All right, so let's talk about Jacob and his wives, see what kind of time we have to talk about this first part. Use the word sadly again. It's true. It pains you, really, because you realize that all of these things, folks, that are taking place here, they are going to set the stage for the home in which the boys, also Dinah, but these 11 boys and later Benjamin, although when Benjamin came along, his mother died in childbirth. This is going to be the climate. So most of us here, not all of us, but a lot of us here are, are kind of veterans of this experience. Some people are looking forward to it or still in the midst of it, but it does give you pause to think what kind of home did we have for our kids growing up? Was it a good home? I mean, we weren't perfect. We made mistakes. But was it a good home? Did we do our best? Did we have a context that we could expect God to bless? That's why I say this is sad. Look what it starts with. I mean, what kind of deal is it when what your kids see growing up between their, mo their, two, their mothers, the two women in the home, is envy? You ever stop and think about how potent a force envy is? I mean, we're more apt to preach hard and talk about the so-called sins of the flesh, you know, the, the, the high-profile ones that people see. This is a sin of the spirit. The writer, the writer in Proverbs has something to say about this. I don't know if you've ever caught this verse before. This verse has caught my attention many a time. When I was thinking to myself, I came across this verse, and I said, well, yeah, I should memorize this verse because I don't have a verse that I've just outright memorized on envy. And I hope I don't have a big problem with envy, but I don't want to have a big problem with envy. I don't have any problem with envy. 
I want to be content. That's what God says we're supposed to be. But here's what Proverbs 27 and verse 4 says. Wrath is cruel. It's another sin of the Spirit. And anger is overwhelming. But then it says this. Who can stand before envy? And probably some of Shakespeare could inform us a little bit about that too, but we won't worry about illustration for now. Well, the story opens with a sad note, envy. What a, what a context to have for your home. And it goes kind of down the sewer pipe pretty quickly here from there because in the very next verse, it goes to blame. You have Rachel. She's very upset. That's why I, I wrote or read this portion back or referred back to this portion. Beginning in chapter 29, verse 31, you have the record of the first four children that come into the home, and they're all Leah. So think about this. If you put yourself in, in Rachel's situation now, she, Rachel wasn't asking for a competitive wife, neither was Leah, for that matter, although Leah did sort of go along with the plan. But she's gone now for, what would you say, probably four years? I mean, if you, if you look at the time that's elapsed for four children to be born, so she's well into several years of her marriage, and her competitor is having children about every year, it seems like. I mean, we're not exactly told that way, but the story's kind of written with that flavor. And she's not. And you know how big a deal this is, not just to ladies in general, but in the Bible context, this was everything for a woman. And so you, your heart can go out to her, but this isn't the right way to lash out at her husband, particularly when it's obvious it's not her husband's fault. Why do I say that? Two reasons. Number one, it's not like she was hurting for attention. She was the beloved. Are you with me what I'm saying? It's also not like it was a biological problem or a health problem on Jacob's part. You know what I'm saying. It's obvious that Jacob didn't have a problem begetting children because four of them had already been begotten. So what is she, where does she get this idea of saying to her husband, give me children or else I die? And I think Jacob is somewhat justified. It does say he got angry, which depending on how far that went, that's not good. Not, not always the best way to respond to your wife, even when your wife, is, your wife is wrong. Although my wife taught me from the beginning of our marriage that wives are always right. And I have sort of just embellished on that saying a little bit. And she, once in a while she says that to me still. And I, she says, wives are always right. And I say, you're right, even when they're wrong. And I think mine's better, because it's the truth if you want to be in the house with a happy camper. So, not, not maybe the best way to handle the situation, but, um, you know, he's a little perturbed by the thing. And he responds back to her, am I in the place of God who is with hell? He's correct in this, not me. We need to be looking towards God. God is really the one who is in charge here. Probably not something she wants to hear, but it does expose something that when we have this blame and anger in our lives, it's usually um, we, ident we, we direct it towards some human source, just what she does here. In reality, it's directed against God. So he's, he's kind of spot on with his analysis there. Then from there to rivalry, look at verse 8. Rachel says, 
with mighty wrestlings. I don't know if you have a marginal reading on this, but um, this is literally with the wrestlings of God. I mean, she just sees herself locked in competition with her competitor. And that's why she names this child. So here's another point to make. You go through this and you read about this child, and everyone, not only these children going up in this atmosphere, growing up in this atmosphere of envy, blame, rivalry, and bitterness, we'll talk about that in a moment, but their very names enshrine those, those problems that were in that home. Ouch. Not good. So, finally, to bitterness, verse number 15. Reuben goes out, gets the mandrakes. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And the minute he shows up with them, Rachel says to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And, he, <laughs> and she says in return, Leah says this, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? And so just a little bit of that bitterness leaks out. It's all understandable. Your heart goes out to these people, but it's not a real good thing to have in the context of your home with your kids growing up around, and it doesn't really make for peace. So what do they do? Well, Rachel first, then Leah. They resort to Sarah's old expediency. They come up with the, the servant girls that their father had given them as part of their wedding present. Kind of makes you wonder about old Laban. What did he know? I don't know. Laban's, uh, Laban's shifty. I don't trust Laban, but I'm unwilling to read more into it than I can get out of the text. So this is not good. Genesis 16.3, So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband is a wife, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, look here, there's trouble right away. She looked with contempt on her mistress. How well did Sarah respond to that? Remember the text? Not too well. She sent her packing. <laughs> Don't you remember? It's not too good. And so... I mean, you know, you could, these people knew all those stories. They might not have had it in their Bible because it wasn't written at that point, but they knew all the stories. I was asking my wife this week, or telling my wife, you know, I was trying to work through a little computer issue, and the problem was that it wanted my password. And I entered my password, and it came back and said, incorrect password. And so I entered it again, it's incorrect password. So I went and checked where I keep my memory jogging situations. I typed the thing in right three times, and it's telling me that I typed the wrong password. And this is Apple telling me this. Now my blood pressure's up. And I'm trying to figure out how I'm gonna get into this thing to accomplish what it is I've gotta accomplish, and I finally said, I'll try one more time. It just took it. I mean, really weird. I expect, I'd expect that from Microsoft. <laughs> I'm sorry. But anyway, I just did a little inside joke. But um, anyway, what I was going to get at is, what do they say the definition of insanity is? 
doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting a different result. So I reminded her that's what I was doing, typing in the password and expecting a different result. It's always once in a while to, nice to disprove the rule, but the exceptions really don't do that. And that's, that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, <laughs> you keep trying to do something that's been proven not to work, and then when it turns up a bad result, you're surprised. And then the next thing we get in the story, I'm all I'm just trying to illustrate the point. They, they're going about it the wrong way. Each time it's the wrong way. The mandrakes. Now, the mandrakes, they were um, more native to the, the Mediter closer to the Mediterranean. You're talking now Peyton Aram, which is way inland and up in Syria from where these plants would normally occur. So when Reuben goes out during the wheat uh, harvest, and finds them, he thinks of his mother right away. Why does, why does that happen? Because the, the mandrakes, as I say in your notes, were regarded not only as an aphrodisiac, but also as a fertility aid. So I'll just help mom out. And he gets home with those things. His mom is Leah now. He gets home with those things and Rachel sees him and that sets off the next round of competition. Did you ever think about Jacob in all of this, it's kind of like he's a ping pong. She, she pays for the, for the, buys the mandrakes and then rushes out when Jacob's coming home that night. I can imagine how this, this went down. Some of these scenes in the Bible, I'd really like to have been a fly on the wall. You have to come into me tonight, I, bar, I hired you with my son's mandrakes, but what does that tell you about the nature of the home? This is, folks, this is sad. It really is sad. It, it's just, when you depart from God's way, it, it, it always, there's always a harvest of sadness, it seems. And so, even though a time or two, we see some positive notes, some hints of prayer. Verse number six, where do I see that? Rachel says, God has judged me and also heard my voice. That implies prayer. Leah says later, verse 17, God listened, it says in the text, God listened to Leah. So we can't say that these ladies are all, none of this is meant to suggest that these ladies are all bad. It's only illustrating and making the point that seeking God's blessing according to God's way, whether it's the mandrakes or the servant girls or resorting to competition, envy, anger, or any of these things is not God's way. And it's kind of interesting how our section here ends because before we get to the birth of Rachel's first child, Leah has two more. This is after the Mandrakes episode. So now you've got two, two more years probably that have gone by, maybe a little bit more because Dinah is born, so maybe three. And that's why I, say I think Dinah... I think Dinah sort of figures into this with the name because it's almost like Leah in a moment of weakness. I told you it's related to Dan, which means vindicate, vindicated. So it's almost like the last child in the record that she has. She sort of digs Rachel a little bit. It's almost kind of like, take that. Because it has to do with vindication once again. You think about it. You don't have to subscribe. But you still have all this time goes by, and when she finally does conceive, it isn't the mandrakes, it isn't anything else, it's God. 
Look at it. Then God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb. Folks, blessings come from God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, James 1.17. That's where blessings come from. They come from God. So if we would petition God for blessing and ask God for blessing, we need to remember, trust, and obey. Well, we have to move on. Um, <laughs> this is good for another whole lesson, but see, we don't have enough in the quarter. Tell you what, this Laban character. I mean, if, if Jacob is a piece of work, I mean, Laban, let's read the verses. You see what I'm getting at. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph. So there's something quite significant about this. We're not told totally all what it is, but Jacob's ready to pack up. He says to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wages, or my wives, they were his wages, and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you. Know the service that I have given you. But, uh, but Laban said unto him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me, for you have had little, you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled. So if he comes to check, if he finds any, not speckled, spotted among the goats, black among the lambs, if he finds any, they'll, they'll be counted as stolen. Laban says, this is too good to be true. Good, let it be as you have said. But, that but's a big word there. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured, pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks that brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted and Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flocks that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly, that's Jacob, and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, 
camels, donkeys. So what happens? Well, he's fulfilled his contract. Remember, he said 14 years. That's what we have in 29-27. So he's ready to go home. And I use the word understandably. I, I think I can't find any fault with this. I mean, why would we? Jacob, it's understandable. His, he'd like to get back to see his mother. She said, just go for a few days. It's been 14 years at this point. His father said, go find a wife. He certainly did that. God told him in that chapter 28, when he had the dream, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to bring you back, and my word will not fail until I've accomplished everything I've promised you that I'll do. And now he's fulfilled the 14 years, so what's to find fault with? Nothing. But Laban, and I, this is a characterization I think holds up, you know, you never see him, but what he doesn't seem to be looking out for himself. Which is natural, but not a biblical value, because it's selfishness. It was selfish when he did the deal that he did with Leah and Rachel. He wasn't thinking a hoot about what we just looked at this chapter today, what, that, the, what, what kind of a home that would make for, what, what would happen in the marriage, what would happen with the children. He wasn't thinking about that. He was thinking about himself, and he's still thinking about himself. By the way, um, it might trouble you a little bit. You see in verse 27, he says, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination. Well, again, I don't want to take a lot of time with this, but probably, this, this, would, this would be my view of this. I think the King James probably has the better take on this because it translates learned by experience. So the point is you can take this expression literally, in which case... It gives you a little bit of a hiccup because you're thinking to yourself, what is Laban doing using divination? We ran into that in the life of Joseph, remember? There were references to that. And I don't want to go there now, but Laban would be the more dubious of the two. Jo Joseph and Laban. Laban would certainly be the more dubious character. But I don't know that there's any reason that we can't just take this figuratively, especially when there are other places in the Bible that use it the very same way. Notably, that verse... Uh, 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 33, um, I think I have the verse. Do you remember this when um, Ahab got the upper hand with Ben-Hadad and chased after him? And, and uh, this verse tells us, I think I gave you this from the ESV, but um, it says they were watching for a sign. That's this word. The King James translates as observed intently. They wanted to see whether the surviving people, Ahab, was going to give the orders to kill them all dead. So they were watching really carefully how Ahab was going to respond. And the moment he said, thy brother, yes, your brother Ben-Hadad, that's what those guys were watching for, and they interpreted that positively. And so, you know, things worked out for Ben-Hadad. He didn't lose his head that day. But the point is, this is the same verb translated watching, or as I told you, the King James translates observed intently. Learned by experience, I think, is probably the way we should go with this. And um, shouldn't surprise us that you would have an expression used figuratively like this, because once in a while, I'll say this, just kind of in fun, but I'm obviously using it figuratively because I don't do this, but once in a while we'll say, you know, well, read the tea leaves. Right? And most of us don't do that. 
that's not a good practice, but we don't mean that so much by it. So I think that's what you've got going on here. Now, if you look at Laban, uh, and if, even if you look at Jacob, this is where we're working to, um, to make this point. Both these men want God's blessing. He's already said, you know, I, I, I've seen here that the, the Lord's blessed me for your sake. Jacob points it out to him too, you know, I didn't have much when I came and God has blessed you through me. So they both want God's continued blessing in their lives, but they, neither of them really go about it the right way. What's wrong with what Laban does? Well, he seems to be polite. He says to Jacob in verse 28, name your wages and I will give it. Boy, that sounds magnanimous. I mean, if your boss told you that, would you feel good? Name your wages. You're so valuable to me. Name your wages. You just, I just have to have you stay. Hmm. Gets down to... A little bit later, the actions speak a little bit louder than the words. Verse 34, he also seems to be polite when he says, Good, let it be as you have said. But as I told you, what's he do the next day? He takes the very ones that he's just agreed will be Jacob's wages, the striped ones, the speckled ones, the black lambs. The black lambs were um, more rare. He puts them under the care of his sons, takes them out of the flock altogether, so Jacob has basically got to start from zero. He doesn't have any seed stock. It's just all from zero. And puts them under the care of his sons and moves them three days away. Now, here's my question to you. If these sons were such red-hot shepherds, how come he needed Jacob to stay in the first place? But that's what he does. I mean, this is uh, it's not a good father-in-law. He's not trusting God, but he certainly doesn't trust Jacob. But how, who knows? Maybe Jacob gave him a little reason. After all, Jacob wasn't anybody's slouch either. So he rings the deal in his own favor. Then for Jacob, I mean, we don't know what Jacob intended from the beginning, whether he intended to do what he did later or not. But one thing's for sure. We do know when he gets to verse 37, he fights fire with fire. Laban separates the all the ones that he's agreed can be Jacob's wages, and Jake, Jacob is kind of like Leah and, and the Dinah thing. Hmm, we'll see about that. And so he comes up with this deal where he gets these sticks and he peels them so these white streaks are in them, kind of reflecting the belief of the day that if during conception these animals saw some vivid sight like that, it would have a dramatic effect on the embryo. That's what's being reflected here. I'm not sure I'd want to go by that today, but that's what he was acting on. He also uses selective breeding, as you can see. He, he does this when the stronger ones are breeding. And so then the final result of it is, even though it takes some time for all of this to work out, at the end of six years, when all of this has run its course, Jacob has huge wealth. Look at it, verse 43. Thus the man increased greatly. And Laban's sons weren't too happy about it either, by the way. The red-hot shepherds that I was telling you about, they weren't real thrilled. That's in the next chapter. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, camels and donkeys. I mean, it, but, Angela, <laughs> sermon that I preached on this, chapter a long time ago. Jacob's rods are Jacob's God. Who's, who's doing this? Is it Jacob and all of his selective breeding and knowledge of livestock? He's a good shepherd, there's no question about that. But 
What's he really relying on? Is he, is he trusting that God will take care of him? He's dealing with a shifty, dishonest father-in-law. But he has God's promise, right? He said, I'll be with you wherever you go. I'll bring you back safely. Not one thing is going to fail of what I've promised to you until it's all been fulfilled. I know what I'm telling you this morning is hard, folks. I mean, when somebody's sticking the knife in your back, it's hard not to respond in kind, and it's hard to trust God under those circumstances. It's still the right thing to do. Even to the point when you get to 1 Corinthians 6 in the New Testament, the Corinthians were a little bit that way, you know. Brother was taking brother to law, and that before unbelievers. And Paul says you're all together at fault. He condemns them for this. He says you ought to have suffered the wrong. You can trust God with these wrongs. I'm telling you folks right now, that's one of the hardest things to do in life, is to trust God with the wrongs. And there's not a soul in this room this morning that doesn't know what I'm talking about. We've all had wrongs done to us. How are you going to respond? See, you can't control what they do to you, but you can respond. control how you respond. This is not easy preaching, or it is easy preaching and hard living. So they both want God's blessing, but they both seek it in self-reliance, using their native gifts, using their skills, using both of them their, their sort of a shiftiness. It's kind of interesting. In Hebrew, Laban. So you, you remember when you write Hebrew, or at least you've heard this if you haven't studied it, you don't write the vowels. If somebody says there are no vowels in Hebrew, that's crazy. You can't speak without vowels. You ever try? Hebrew has value, vowels, it's just that in the written text you don't use them. So you come along, come along later in the Masoretic text, you have the vowel pointing supplied. So you know how to read the words and you know what they mean. But anyway, if you take the consonants of Laban to us, LBN, in Hebrew, Lameth, Baith, Noon. No vowels, two A's in English. And then you take the same word for white. Same consonants, Lameth, Baith, Noon. Different vowel pointing. So what's the point of that technicality? The point of it is there's a play on words. If you called Laban Old Whitey, because that's what his name meant, Jacob peels the rods and exposes the flocks to the white in the rods and wins. So he outfoxes the old fox, is kind of what's going on here. He prevails. Thank God he later confesses, you know what, looking back on it, and I think every one of us would say this, all those times we thought we did such smart things and, and succeeded in life, and it wasn't us. It was God in spite of us. That's what it was. Verse 43, he says, or it says, thus the man increased, God blessed him, Verse 31, uh, verse 5 of chapter 31, he says here, I see that your father does not regard me with the favor as he did before. That's an understatement. But the God of my father has been with me. There it is. And when we get down to verse 42 later, he's talking to his wives about this in the first verse. Later he's talking to Laban, says the very same thing to him. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you yesternight. First of the verse, if God, 
If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. So it was Jacob's God. It wasn't Jacob's rods. Remember when some of us were in school, I don't know if they still do this, Bruce, you might know, but over the blackboards, I don't they even have blackboards anymore, but over the blackboards you'd have those chapel sayings. I don't know if this was on one of those or not, but he used to say, it's in the little pamphlet, chapel sayings, you'll find it there, religion is reliance. And you can tell a lot about a man's religion by what he relies on is the point. So if that's the case, the five people who are named in this chapter, Rachel, Leah, Reuben, Laban, and Jacob, what's their religion? It's the religion of self-reliance. And folks, I'm telling you, here's the thing, he's learning it, but little by little what God is doing is the same thing he's doing with me and the same thing he's doing with you. He's peeling away, peeling back, those layers of self-reliance, and continually reminding us every day, every week, every month, every year, it's me. I hold the keys to blessing in your life. So seek the Lord. Father, bless us as we prepare our hearts now for the hour to come. In Jesus' name, amen.